Ladies and gentlemen, one of the most beautiful men in the whole world. Let's welcome Mr. Richie Havens. Five Dino's guitar. Hello. Can you hear? Groovy. Groovy. <clears throat> okay. Um. Wow. It's really beautiful to see so many people together. I know it might be a tiny bit uncomfortable, but so can sleeping be a tiny bit uncomfortable. Right? Right. Okay. Groovy. Can you turn it back up? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Duritz. This is my friend, James Campion. And we've decided to do some Woodstock podcasts. Yes. That was the opening announcement from Woodstock with uh, John Morris. Uh, I think it's John Morris and not Chipmunk right there. uh, Introducing uh, Richie Havens. Who then proceeds to express the <laughs> the uh, the mindset of everyone else there that day too? <laughs> Holy shit! You know what's funny about that is um, that's how the most famous festival at that point, the largest gathering of an entire generation of people, and easily the greatest uh, collection of artists from the rock and roll era begins. <laughs> With a folk guy from the village who gets thrown out on stage and is like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> Of course, Richie Havens was not supposed to open the show. Uh, right. It was supposed to be open with an invocation by Swami Sachinanda, and then followed by a band uh, called Sweetwater. But as happened the entire weekend over and over and over again, they hadn't shown up yet because it was fucking impossible to get there. Right. I mean, it was uh, the traffic was insane. It stopped probably 15 to 20 miles away from the uh, festival. Yeah, they closed the, the New York Thruway. It, it, was, was, it was considered a disaster area by the end of day one by the um, governor. Yeah. Well, they, they talked the governor out of declaring it that, though, and sending the oh, National Guard, because they actually worked it out. Oh, that's they, right. They, they, they wanted the National... to declare it a disaster area and send in the National Guard, and they talked him out of it, and it, it was good, because he didn't need to be. They actually handled it very well. Yes. For a large gathering of this sort, and considering how bad like Woodstock 99 was you know, 30 years later... How shitty and stupid the handling of that was. Yes. They actually handled it brilliantly in 1969, which is incredible. Um, yeah, I ended up writing a piece about that in 99 about how really it was a combination of luck because the guys who ran it, Michael Lang, and who's the other gentleman who, who ran this? Uh, Michael Lang, Joel Rosenman, John Roberts, and Artie Kornfeld. Artie Kornfeld, right. They had planned on making this a money making endeavor. And they wanted to run it in Woodstock. They got kicked out of that. I'm sure you've done a lot of research. You have the whole story. But it, it sort of was kind of thrown together with the idea that we were going to make some money. They paid all the acts, and then it just became, it devolved into this, everybody running over the fences and hanging out. It well, could have been really bad. There's more to it than that, actually. It was, uh, so Joel Rosenman and uh, John Roberts were planning to build a recording studio in New York, and they ended up meeting with uh, Artie Lang, and, I mean, Artie Kornfeld and Michael Lang, because the, uh, as, like, they're all entrepreneurs, and those guys wanted to build a 
a studio in Woodstock, actually. And they talked about, like, what if we did all this together? They had this idea of this sort of studio in the woods in this area where all these musicians are living. Right. We uh, should mention the band. The band, Dylan. Uh, D- Dylan. Uh, 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 Hendrix, by that time, had moved up correct, there, too. Correct, correct. Um, so they didn't think much of the Woodstock studio idea, but they did come up with an idea of planning a concert up there uh, because so many musicians live there, and, and they would, you know, be, would feature a lot of the people who lived in the area. Right. Um, and they, they decided to work on that together. They were very different kinds of people. Uh, I think the, Rosamond and Roberts were much more business and organized oriented. Lang and Kornfeld were much more like music business sort of, right, hippie hey, it's going to be cool. Um, Rich kids, you know, running around trying to spend their money on something cool to do. Um, and they had a problem with the site. They originally planned it in Wallkill, which is uh, what we think of as near where Woodstock is now, uh, near the site that they proposed to make the studio. Uh, but the residents sort of put the kibosh on that. Uh, they they were all very much against the idea. Right. There's a great film about that. Uh, and then they – what's that about. film? Uh, the one with that kid, uh, the comedian. Oh, Taking kid. Woodstock. Taking Woodstock. Very Dimitri Martin, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, about, then they planned a second one in Saugerties, and that was banned by the town council who very smartly proposed – passed a law right then requiring <laughs> a permit for any gathering over 5,000 people to make sure they didn't accidentally do it without their approval. Right. Um, and the, the other funny thing is that while this is going on and they're going from town to town, the organizers keep telling everyone they they expect no more than 50,000 people. Even after it's gone on sale when they finally do find a site and ticket sales are at 146,000, uh, they're still telling everyone they only expect 50,000 people. Eventually, they do find uh, Maxi Asger's dairy farm, yes. which is uh, well, but, but how in Bethel. Was- how old was – yeah, Bethel, that's right. How old was Max then? He had to be like at least in his late 60s. I think so. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, they had some resistance and uh, they got a stop work order from the Bethel Town Council. Uh, but the approval finally came through on August 2nd and the town okayed the, the playing Which there. Which is amazing, people. That's yeah. two weeks before – and we're doing this because it's the 50th anniversary of it. But two weeks before this huge festival that they already sold over 100,000 tickets that they're saying 50,000 are going to come – yeah. And they finally find a place to build the stage. Not as bad as Altamont, which was the whole within 24 hours, but it was, it's pretty tough. Well, and this is what led to some of the other stuff you were talking about, because they realized at that point they had two problems. They had a meeting about three days before the festival. Having finally gotten the approval and getting everything organized, three days before the festival, they, have, they realized they have two choices. They can either complete the fencing around the venue and build the ticket booths, which will enable them to make the money that they need to make, because they've put out a huge amount of money for this thing. Or they can build the stage and the lighting towers, which they need to actually put on a show. Right. And it's one or the other. And they're trying to figure out which one to do. And this is like about on the Tuesday when on the Wednesday all these people start showing up. Right. Tens of thousands of people already showing up three days before the show. And they're like faced with the realization that that makes their decision for them. Right. And they are just going to have to build the stage, which is the smart thing to do anyways. Sure. Um, and That's so, the only thing they could do. They had yeah. no, like you said, they had no, uh, there's no show. There's no show otherwise. And what happens is people without tickets who would have bought them when they arrived just walk through the big open gaps in the fence yeah. and begin inhabiting this land. The farm is has a, hu- a big hillside that slopes down towards a pond. And they're going to put the stage by the pond in front of the pond and the hillside will form a natural bowl for people to watch from. Uh, so basically, it's it becomes unintentionally, although they make a decision to make it happen, a free concert. And on the al in the album and in the film, you hear they make the you know, hey people, it's a free concert from now on. And there were a lot of people who were kind of angry about that. 
um, because they had bought the tickets. And there were people who did pay for the tickets. Oh, yeah, 140-some-odd thousand. Yeah, before they even got there. So it, it became a little unruly. And again, this is all to say what we're trying to say at the very top here is how amazingly, miraculously lucky they were that there wasn't more violence, that there wasn't more problems, uh, just issues with different things. There were issues with getting musicians in and out of there. Uh, there were issues, obviously, with drug deals, uh, d- drug overdoses, or different. I think I there think were two fatalities as well. There was one from an insulin problem with someone who had diabetes and couldn't find his medicine. And there was one from a person who had gone over to a neighboring farm and slept in a hayfield and, and got run, run over, over by a tractor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but those are the only two fest- two, two fatalities, uh, which is kind of incredible for it. The festival bankrupted the promoters temporarily. I should say that before you get. It, they did a really great thing in throwing it anyways and not charging people and building the stage. Well, they always had the film. But that's what happened. The film was an enormous success, and when it came out, it turned the soundtrack into a gold mine too. So it more than made up for the money they lost. But right. bank- temporarily, they were bankrupted right. pretty much by this uh, thing. So what happens on the day of the show is, again, they haven't the, – the traffic is Which a is problem. Friday. Friday the 15th. Yeah. Yeah. The traffic is a problem, and – the Friday show is supposed to start later, but still people aren't there. And, uh, you know, they eventually set up a hotel as a base for artists some, some amount of miles away. And from that hotel, they organized the helicopter flights in for people. Um, but in the meantime... And the U.S. Army helped with this, too. They, or the uh, National Guard. Yeah, they de- brought Delivering in- supplies and stuff, yes. sure, and medical supplies. Uh, but eventually, they're standing there backstage with no Swami Sachinanda to do the evocation. Or and, sweet water. And no sweet water <laughs> to play first. And, right. and so Richie comes on stage and plays. Who was uh, a well-known folk artist from the late 50s, early 60s in Greenwich Village who lived in New York and had gone up there, I believe, the day before. So he had been, he's one of the few people who could actually get up there because he made it there prior. And, and by the way, I should say while you're checking on that, um, the first book, the only book really I ever read about Woodstock was Barefoot in Babylon by uh, Robert Spitz, who went on to Bob Spitz went on to write, I think, the quintessential Beatles biography. Uh, it's called The Creation of Woodstock Music Festival of 69. I believe it came out in 1980, and I read it in college. And it's, it has all of this information in it, very well done. The great stories about how the musicians got there, how they booked the musicians, uh, the battles of who was going to play first and who was going to close what days, and there's a lot of cool stuff. We'll talk a lot about that in this podcast, but I love that book. I just want to pitch it uh, and uh, promote it for this. If you're interested in the history of Woodstock, because I'm sure as these podcasts go, we'll do a few of them, you're going to start seeing all these commemorative things coming out in magazines and, and the news and everything talking about the 50th anniversary. So that's a way you can go back and really research it well. Uh, Richie Havens, uh, who is, how old is he, 27, 28 at this point. Uh, he's a Native American father and an Afro-Caribbean mother. He grew up in Bed-Stuy uh, as a folk singer in Greenwich Village. Um, I don't know if he's actually managed by Albert Grossman, but he's... At one point, I think he, he was, did. He was at one point definitely yeah. working with him. And um, Grossman, of course, managed Dylan and uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary and uh, a few others at the time. Uh, the festival is supposed to start at 4. It's already 5 when they finally... Uh, Asked Richie Havens if he would play. Um, it, in his set, he's only supposed to play four songs. He plays. They keep telling him he needs to play longer because <laughs> uh, because they don't, they don't, no one's there. They're not ready for the other bands to come yet. He ends up doing a version of "With a Little Help from My Friends" with no words. 
where he's just sort of do 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 right. With ironically, will become a big part of this festival uh, version of that. Yeah, and all these, you know, I must say that Woodstock was the key. There was a lot of stories about Woodstock about who was going to play and who wasn't going to play. I mean, they they basically went after everyone that could possibly pe- play. Uh, they even, you know, they were constantly pepper- peppering the Be- Beatles or some Beatles to show up. Uh, the big the big controversy was the Doors because this was after Jim Morrison was arrested in Florida, so the Doors couldn't play and they didn't feel that they were the right mixture there. Uh, uh, but it was a great combination of so many different types of music, uh, folk, funk, soul, uh, acid rock, L.A. sound, San Francisco sound, New York City sound. It was really – they did a really good job of, of putting together a festival that showed all the different sides of music at that period. Let's get you into some music. Day one is the folk day at Woodstock. I want to play you this one song that I really love by Richie Havens that he played that day called Handsome Johnny. It's an anti-war song, and it's the closing song of his set or, you know – not the encore, but it's the closing song of his set. So this is uh, this is Richie Havens playing "Handsome Johnny." Tell me what's that you see Marching to the fields of Concord Looks like handsome Johnny With his flintlock in his hand Marching to the Concord War Hey, marching to the Concord War Hey, look around and tell me what's that you see Marching to the fields of Gettysburg Looks like handsome Johnny with his Hey, musket in his hand, marching to the Gettysburg War. Hey, marching to the Gettysburg War. Hey, look yonder, tell me what's that you see? Marching to the fields of Dunkirk. Looks like handsome Johnny with a carbine in his hand Marching to the Dunkirk War Hey, marching to the Dunkirk War Tell me what's that to see Marching to the field of Korea Looks like handsome Johnny With the M1 in his hand Marching to the Korean War Hey, marching to the Korean War Still marching Still marching Still marching It's a long, hard road it's a long, hard road It's a long, hard road Came before, 
We'll be free, baby boy. We'll be free, yeah, free, yeah, yeah, yeah. trying to think to myself put, try to put my feet in the shoes of others and what they must have been going through when they were doing this or that and I always think of Richie because what it must have been like for any of these I mean I don't care how big a pop star you are even the Beatles nobody played in front of a half a million people hardly anyone ever played music during the day and here's a guy who gets pushed out there you know he's not supposed to play yet and he goes out there just by himself with a couple of guys Playing con- one other guitar player and a guy playing congas, and and just has to play and sing his heart out, and he does a beautiful job. And that's a, you're right, that is just a great song. It's a great sh- song for the times. I love the juxtaposition of you know handsome Johnny marching off to war in every war through the first half of the century, and he has to march to Birmingham just to get the rights for the country he's fighting for. And I, I just love that whole uh, story, the chronology of it, and all done within you know three and a half, four minutes. Just one guy singing to a half a million people and opening. You know what will end up being the iconic musical festival of all time. It's incredible. It's funny. He plays for about fifty minutes. Uh, if you you read uh, different re- accounts of it, including like on Wikipedia, uh, one of the Wikipedia accounts, like the Richie Havens Wikipedia page, the Woodstock Wikipedia page, which has the times that everybody played, lists them as playing from five oh seven to six. Oh, oh, cool. But the the Richie Havens Wikipedia page and other ones, other accounts I've read, talk about how he played for nearly three hours. Because, I mean, one of the things that was true of it is that they did keep telling him, play more. Yeah, because yeah. he's supposed to play three or four songs. He plays ten. Because they, they, they don't, they're not ready. You know, it, it's an hour late starting. The bands aren't there. He's not supposed to start. They're still not there. He's playing. They keep telling him to play more songs. Instead of four songs, he plays ten songs, I think. Although some of them are like a medley reprise. And plus... Everyone is fucking wasted, yeah, yeah. and this will this will come up People throughout this festival. <laughs> everyone is fucking wasted. Right, right. They're taking so much. There's so many people. This is a point where like you didn't just take acid. 
people were making acid yeah. because it was yeah. a new thing, and, and everyone strong, was really strong acid, not the little stamps that people took in the eighties. But all kinds of like <laughs> everyone's making their own, so you get this homemade acid. Throughout the concert, people are talking about the blue, the green, and the, the brown. brown, which is a problem. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, they're just, they're just naming it by the color it came in, uh. and everyone's memory of this, like. Country Joe McDonald, I've read reports where, like, completely different days he played on. He played on two separate days, but he's oh. completely off oh, on which days they were. that's he plays by himself were. and he plays with yes. the fish. But right. he's completely off in some reports about which days they were. <laughs> like, there's so much lack of clarity because everyone's so fucking wasted. Uh, meanwhile, Richie Havens is just trying to get it started. Right. Because no one else has shown up to do that. I'm not even sure his whole band is here. I think he's playing with three guys and it was supposed to be a four. I think there are three of them on stage and it's supposed to be a four piece. Like I think it's only three because I'm trying to picture it from the film, which by the way, you and I have had issues with the film in the past and we talked about it. It's not a great film, but there are moments in that film where they really capture it. And this one where they show, they pan down, they show Richie with his sandals and he's bopping his feet yeah. on clearly plywood that they just slapped together like a couple of hours ago. It well, still has the stamps on it. That, you know, the stage is just literally plywood. I mean, I do think as a documentary, it's a great movie because as a, as a, it's not a great music movie to me, but it's not concerned with being that. It was, it's out of order, and it's really a document of the the times and the place. And he really, the director does a lot in, in like talking to the people out in the audience and showing reactions. It's it's not a great document of a musical of a concert musical, like it's, Monterey Pop. Yeah, like Monterey Pop is right. D.A. Pennebaker's piece. But as a as a cultural document, I do think it is. An important document that way, maybe one of the most important musical right. films because of that. And by the way, but, it, its legend was cemented by the film because oh, yeah. there was a lot of negativity after the thing was over. It was very popular; it was a big deal. It was an international front page story all over the world. You know, half a million kids showing up to this one place in the middle of nowhere uh, and, 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 and getting along and doing it with pouring rain and mud and, and lack of water. I, I, I often tell the story, and I'll, I'll make it real quick, but I have a, a couple of personal connections to Woodstock, and one of them was I was up there that weekend. So every year, my family would take us to this place called Glenwood Farms up in uh, the Catskills. I oh, right town by Bethel. Yeah. So we were up there that weekend, and the water was poised. The wells were drawn out, so mud was coming up, and they couldn't draw water from the wells. But before you could tell it was muddy, people were drinking the water. And all of us in this place got sick. All of us. There was like everybody. It was, wow. It was, yeah. It was terrible. We had gone there like my whole childhood. And I'll never forget. And it, was, it wasn't until years, years later. I, I said to my dad. We were just bringing it up in conversation. I said, Dad, remember that time we went to Glenwood Farms? And we were so sick. And that was the weird. Everybody was sick. He goes, yeah, it was Woodstock. There was like 600,000 people in a place where normally like. 3,000 people are, and they were using up everything there. So getting back to the film itself, or excuse me, for the, for the, the festival itself, which, which you're right, the film does depict really well, is that these people were surviving together for three days, and there was just great sort of feedback. Look what these people can do. Look what just people can do if they just bind together and they share and they do the right thing. But then there was this sort of like post-negativity to it. They destroyed the town. A lot of the farms were being positive. We have to ima- imagine, imagine, too, that the that culturally a lot of the establishment would be, uh, you know, had a lot of investment in, in this not being a great not thing. Not being a great And there's, a, there's an account I read of a, of a daily news reporter who was sent up there to cover it who was writing pretty honestly because he was pretty impressed by how well it had all been run and how, like, everyone, like, the hog farm people volunteered to do stuff. And his editors were like, no, no, we don't want this piece. This needs to be slanted a different way. And he actually said, I will quit 
and I will give this piece to another newspaper if you do this. Right. They, they wanted yeah. a slam piece, yeah. and he said, I went there, and I was ready to slam it, but it was yeah. amazing. And it really is to this, to this day. And I wrote about it after 99. You played one of these Woodstocks, did you I played you not? 99, which was a fucking disaster. Now you, did you get out of there before? Yeah, we'll talk about it later. Okay. <laughs> fucking, it <laughs> but I'm saying this is pretty cool. I got somebody yeah. who played a Woodstock festival. Yeah, it, at a time when they were supposed to know how to run them, it wasn't good. Right. Um, but anyway, getting back to 69. Well, I just want to – we should play this because – uh, Richie Havens, it the most famous thing in the impression he makes, what shows up in the movie, a lot of stuff, is his encore, which is, you know, let's face it, the last half of his act was an encore because he was not supposed to play any of it. Right. And he keeps coming back. He's playing songs he doesn't know the words to. And he ends up coming back on for an encore and playing a song, which is now called Freedom, which is an improvised extension of the old... Uh, Odetta song. Uh, Motherless Child. Mother- yeah, sometimes a, you know, uh, I feel like, yeah. Um, and it's pretty incredible. I, I know at the end of it, in the movie, you see him. He gets up. He starts to walk over to the side of the stage. He's covered in sweat. He's clearly exhausted. Exhausted. Played much longer than he thought he was going to be playing. And he walks. He's like strumming, and he walks over to the side of the stage. I can't remember. It's almost like, you got to get me off here. Yeah. You know, like, he uh, literally walks off the stage playing the guitar. It's like a live fade. Yeah. <laughs> and he does walk up to people, and he's like, I'm done. It's so great. It's so great. There's a great so. quote from him. He says, for me, the oddest thing was I had to go see the movie to see what I did. I remember Freedom. And I remember Motherless Child, but I didn't remember how it was structured. And I went to the movies and I saw it. It was the first time I saw myself on the screen anywhere. Cool. So that was really cool. So we'll play it for you. Yeah, and also listen to this. I want people to know this, and and you and I talked about this a couple weeks ago. You know, I was supposed to do a version of Freedom for this thing that we do up by my place uh, because the guy who runs it said, let's do each Woodstock song. And I wanted to do Freedom because I was playing on acoustic, but he plays everything Barring his huge fingers over an open-tuned guitar, and there's no version of that you could find online that you could actually transpose. Well, he doesn't bar his fingers; he actually has his thumb his over thumb, the top thank of the guitar. You. He's like Jewel Shear that way. The only other guy I've seen play that way where right, he plays his with thumb. his thumb right. over the front of the guitar, barring over the top with his thumb. It's really wild way of playing guitar, um, and it makes a difference in the sound. Listen to it: the yeah. swish, swish, swish of the guitar. It's so great. So this is a. Uh, this is Richie Havens improvising the live in hell out of a song that's now called Freedom, or Freedom, parentheses, Motherless Child. Richie Havens. Sometimes I 
What better way to start than with the beautiful Richie Havens? We apologize for the uh, noise of the choppity choppity, but uh, it seems there are a few cars blocking the road, so we're flying everybody in. 
I almost made the worst pun in the world about high musicians, but we'll skip that. Before we leave Richie... Paul um, should say... Go ahead, please. That's John Morris after Richie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. John Morris was the production coordinator uh, for the festival, who, along with Chip Monk, who was a lighting designer, right. uh, ended up being sort of like seconded into duties as the official announcers. Um Yes. Of, of Woodstock. So that's John Morris talking about how uh, there's a helicopter coming over everyone's head. And the reason is because they can't get anybody in the other way. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, Chip Monk, of course, uh, worked very tightly for years uh, stage managing for the Grateful Dead and then would go on to work with the Stones in their famous 69 tour later that year uh, in which Get Your Yaya's Out was recorded in November at the Garden. I think that tour opened up in Oakland. And culminated uh, north of San Francisco uh, at Altamont Speedway in which Chipmunk was a huge part of trying to keep people from really just turning that place into a bloodbath. And uh, he tells some great stories in a few books about Altamont. And also he, he was very prominent in the Grateful Dead documentary a couple of years ago that came out. Um, it's funny he was hired because I think he'd also worked at the Fillmore East as a lighting designer and he's hired to do all the lighting designs which he does for Woodstock but they're all based on the plans for it being at Saugerties. And so when they end up doing it at the last minute, right. they can't use any of it. They can't <laughs> – the stage they build can't – he does a whole lighting design for it. He's paid $8,000, which is sixty-five dollars or $70,000 in today's money. And uh, they can't use any of his designs because there is nowhere to hang any of the lights <laughs> on the stage because right. they haven't built that complicated stage. For the entirety of the Woodstock concert, the only lights on stage are the spotlights. That's all they have. Right, which adds a really eerie glow to some of the nighttime stuff like the Who and things uh, later on for the film. I, I was going to – and the film had some lighting. I know Scorsese worked a camera and sound for that thing. That yeah, was assistant it. cameraman and like assistant director and, and editor. Right. Um, the uh, – I did want to say one more thing about Richie, but you reminded me of something. Have you ever been to the site? Have you been to that site? Uh, no, we played Bethel Woods, which is right near it, like right. a few miles away. But yeah, now. I saw Pete Townsend and Joni Mitchell play that Bethel Woods uh, little stadium there uh, yeah. in 98. I think the year before you guys did uh, for the when they had the festival there. Anyway, yeah, so I was there one time with my wife. Um, it was beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. You should check it out. So there's like a plaque at the top. And I think they might have a museum there now. But uh, it's just – you could just tell – you try to picture it. It shows you where the stage was. you got a kind of vibe. It's got a, some great vibes there. Uh, I did want to say one more thing about Richie. We didn't talk about his incredible voice which is so emotive and so gospel, you mentioned, uh, soulful, bluesy, all those things. And I found, I was telling Adam before we started doing this, that I was listening to, uh, there's a list, you can't find, congratulations to my co-host, because he went out and found all these original recordings. Uh, They're not available on Spotify, they're not available on iTunes, uh, many of these. There are some records that have come out, but anyway, uh, I was listening to, on Spotify, they have a list of all the bands that played in the order they played, and they show like recent versions of live versions of the of these songs. And there's a live version of Richie Havens playing Freedom about six weeks or two months before this, and summer of '69. And I got to tell you, it doesn't have nearly the emotion and the adrenaline that that has. So you, clearly, the event affected the way he performed that song. Clearly, the moment captured him, and it, and it, it comes out in the song. His voice is just. He is the perfect person to uh, to open it. Really, it, it was uh, again they lucked out. Um, the next band to play after Swami Sachinanda gives his uh, announcement at seven ten, I think p.m., which is three hours after it was supposed to take place. 
uh, Sweetwater, who was supposed to open the festival at 4 o'clock, ends up playing at 7.30. Um, they're an L.A. band from the folk scene there. They had uh, got their name when they actually went to Monterey Pop, and something about they decided to form a band and they made their name up because they were right. at Monterey Pop. Uh, they had at times a cello, flute, congas. The vocal was a woman, Nancy Nevins, uh, bass, drums, keys. I'm not sure they had a guitar player. So they're like a six- or seven-piece band. Pretty big for the time. Uh, they actually open with a version of, <coughs> of Motherless Child, strangely enough. <laughs> they follow Richie Havens and then open with Motherless Child. Uh, but they play a song I guess we should play for you called Look Out. They, they, they had a, a few years. They were playing for a few years, and Nancy Nevins got into a pretty bad car accident. And was really, really badly injured. Um, and that sort of, I think the band sort of fell apart then because she took a while before she could play again. But this is uh, Sweetwater playing Lookout.
That is so fucking cool. I have never, I never heard that. A lot of this stuff hasn't been released till recently. It's amazing. That is that is a great snapshot, a musical uh, sonic snapshot of the period. I mean, it's just this wild, funky backbeat bass thing with this white soul singer girl who sounds a lot like Grace Slick as you mentioned yes or even just a little Janis Joplin whatever she's doing with her voice there at the end is crazy it sounds like she's whistling well Uh, someone is definitely whistling oh do you think that's whistle oh someone's absolutely going (laughs) (laughs) I can't I can't even whistle like that and they're whistling at some serious volume to be picked (laughs) up on the stage I thought it was her her voice like honing up to that note and then oh god and then the flute it's just oh man if you were gonna do like a 1960s Scene in the middle of a movie. <laughs> I can picture people dancing to that right now. It's so Woodstock. I personally love the jazzy flute and rock music, <laughs> but it's impossible for me to hear it now without thinking of Anchorman. Anchorman, you know? I was going to say. <laughs> I know. They did a beautiful job kind of getting that. Yeah. But I can't think, aside from occasional flourishes, did they have a flute player at points in Fairport Convention? Did they? Uh, I don't remember that. They have one. Traffic, for sure. Traffic for sure, and uh, Jim, obviously what's his name? Jethro Capaldi, Tull. Peter Capaldi, or yeah. Jim Capaldi, and then him. Ian Anderson, of course. Um, so the next act, um, <laughs> and that was like a seven o'clock till like eight. That was a seven thirty to eight ten, and this is the great thing about a day when your acts are all folk acts that the next act goes on at eight twenty, which is an incredible Wait, thing for a rock show. Ten minutes later, it. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, is Burt Summer, and I was really I'd never heard of Burt Summer before, except for knowing his name because he was at Woodstock. But I really was blown away by his set when I was listening to it, when I, when I got these pieces. Um, he's a, a folk singer kid from Long Island. Uh, at some point when he was really young, he briefly is a lead singer on two or three songs with the left bank. But that only lasts for a little while, and the original singer, Michael Brown, comes back. He also got to start writing songs for a lot of other Long Island musicians, including Leslie West's band Before, the Mountain, Before Mountain, which is called The Vagrants. Uh, the Mountain, of course, will play the next day, and they actually play a song that Leslie West co-wrote by with uh, Burt Summer called "Beside the Sea" on in their day two performance. And Summer actually plays one of the songs he wrote for the Vagrants in his performance. He he was a guy that I like joined the uh, West Coast production of Hair and then came to Broadway with it. Right, the original, the original one. Yeah, yes. he plays Woof in the original version of Hair. That's right. And here's a funny fact: it's actually his. If you remember the poster for hair, it's a it's a picture of an outline of a guy in and his hair, long curly hair oh, and multicolored. So he's like the Jerry West of hair. That's exactly <laughs> that is Burt Summers' head outline and hair that you see in the poster for hair. Um, yes, and his debut album was actually produced by Artie Kornfeld, who's one of the promo- concerts organizers who gets him onto Woodstock. But his actual concert live debut takes place on August 15th, 1969 at 8.20 p.m. Wow. Right here in front of half a million people. That is insane. And I, in the film, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, that was their first gig. Or Crosby, Stills, yeah. Nash That was their first gig together. And they make the joke in the, the film. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. They all it was. Yeah, yeah, it was Neil Young. And he goes, this is our first gig. And everybody cheers. But those guys were all big rock stars. Yeah, that was their first gig together. <laughs> Nobody but had any idea Bert who this first gig, <laughs> uh, First perfect. concert gig. Maybe he played some high school shows. But That's this is his first insane. concert gig. And he's 20 years old. And if, I found some film of Great it online. He looks so cool. He's got this big head of curly hair. Uh, and he's just... He's just so young, tall, skinny, young kid. Looks like he's having time of his life. The funny, the sad thing about, and he actually has a really good gig. 
and the audience likes him. He's perfect for this day when you hear the stuff. The sad thing about it is that like all the rights to everything at Woodstock got snapped up by uh, Warner Brothers after the movie came out and whenever everything happened. Right. And Summer was on Capitol, and they don't. So his stuff, his performance doesn't get released anywhere. It's not on Woodstock. There's not a single song on Woodstock 2, the record, which was like cleaning up everything they didn't put on the first on record. first one, right. He's not on the more record they put out a few hours, few years later. He's not in the movie except for some scenes of him on the side, I think, walking around at one point. Um, he's not... None of his performances were included on any of the album releases until 2009, when he was finally included on one of the 40th anniversary releases that wow. was put out, the Back to Yasger's Farm thing. Um, Is that where you found it? No, I found it's that there's, a, there's a record that's just come out now that's in several different versions called Woodstock Back to the Garden, or Woodstock 50 Back to the Garden. Uh, and there's going to be several different releases of it. There's like a 1 CD, a 3 CD, a 10 CD, and then there's one coming out in a week or two that's a 38 CD that has everything recorded there. But it's like $800, and I can't justify that. <laughs> Um, even the geek like me, I'm not spending eight hundred dollars. You had to talk me into doing a show in Woodstock, and while I did get into it, there's no way I was spending eight hundred dollars. But I did Thank buy you, the sir. ten CD one, yes, um, and which it, has a lot of this information, which is where I got a lot of these things it's from. It's crazy, yeah, and, and it's great too because it reminds me when we did the punk thing, where you're coming out with these things, and I'm remembering them or trying to give you some tidbits of stuff that I've read or remembered. But I honestly, except for the, the hair connection, I had no idea who Bert Summers was. That's because I spent the last three and four <laughs> fucking days. Eight hours a day, a wash in Woodstock. People, some of which is great music, and some of which is people who did just way too many fucking drugs. Uh, just, I have been here. You, you can ask Z for four days now. I've been sitting here because you wanted to do a Woodstock show. I have just been a wash You're in a Woodstock, friend. finding fucking bootlegs, <laughs> downloading shit. Chopping up sets in, in Garage Band to get like what the fucking Grateful Dead set was like, right. uh, which is kind of messy from what I understand. Um, but anyways, I, let's but get I back to you. Bert Summer, okay? Right. Uh, yeah, but I will say this though: it's funny. I felt like I'm going to give him some inside baseball. So this morning I texted Adam and I said, "Maybe we should wait to put these out, but we'll do another one." And all you wrote was, "Oh, I've been doing research. I would have written in capital letters." Are you out of your fucking mind? I yes. spent a week. <laughs> when you texted me that this morning with, "I sent you some other music. Maybe we should just do one where we talk." And I was like, "Fuck him!" <laughs> I rolled over. I said to Z, "I'm like." Fuck him, man. <laughs> the last four fucking days, I've done nothing but listen to fucking Woodstock. <laughs> Literally eight hours a day for four days I've been here just I, I drowning in this shit. <laughs> but but I want to get back to Bird Summer. Please. I want to play a few songs from this set because I actually was really impressed by it. And I never heard of him before. Except I, I mean, I knew this. the name. I just never heard a note by him. Right. I'm actually going to go out and buy his first album, which is called The Road to Travel, that, that Artie Kornfeld record. Because I'm... You know, it's supposed to be really good when I looked it up. The first song he plays is this song called Jennifer. It turns out that one of the other cast members of Hair when he was in it was Jennifer Warnes, oh, the sure. songwriter. Songwriter, right. Um, and he wrote this song. He was kind of had a crush on her. He wrote the song about her. So she funny. actually, funny thing, later wrote the massive hit, uh, Up Where We Belong. Gonna lift us up. Yeah, with Joe Cocker's in there. Who's also on this show. <laughs> okay. Well done. It's well a hit done, for him. Sure. A massive, probably his biggest hit ever years later. Now, this is the fir- what we're about to listen to is the very first song. I mean, I'm waxing poetic about Richie Havens getting dragged out there. Richie Havens was a veteran of the business. This is the very first song Burt Summers sings in front of a half a million people as the third act at Woodstock. At the age of 20. Jennifer's heaven for Jenny yesterday Skin shining white as a dove 
Lying beside her and melted away Into a river of love Counting the ways that she smiles Time is slipping away, yeah Lost in the arms of her love So gentle and wild Jennifer's something you handle with care Fragile as crystals of glass Jennifer's lips are as soft as the air Kissing her here in the grass Whoa, I'm lost in a maze Counting the ways that she smiles And time is slipping away, yeah In the arms of her love So gentle and wild Jennifer's heaven For Jenny I'd stay Skin shining white as a dove Lying beside her I melted away Into a river of love Into a river of love Into a river of love So when if when he first started to play, I said to Adam, well, he's got a little bit of a Donovan thing going. There, he doesn't really, it's not quite there, but you could see where he's going. But but as it was playing along, it reminded me very much of that first Nick Drake record. Yeah. Before Nick Drake really became Nick Drake, although, but he he has shows signs on that first record, uh, which is more folk than it than it ends up being. He he sort of reinvents a folk style, Nick. But that's very impressive for a kid to go up there and and do that. Yeah, the next song I want to play is actually one that he wrote for the Vagrants, which is Leslie West's band. His Long Island neighbor, Leslie West, who he must have known and been friends with. Cool. Uh, and he wrote this song for the Vagrants, but he plays it uh, here today, and it's called And When It's Over. So here's a little bit more from Burt Summer. I don't know uh, if anyone, uh, some people might know this. This song's called And When It's Over. And then there are Vagrant fans out here. <laughs> Anybody know the vagrants? Yeah. Right. And when it's over And as you light your cigarette Feeling much older Knowing that there was no regret Touching your shoulder 
That's a great fucking song, and he really kills it. Yeah, he's a talented kid. No kidding. uh, So he he played ended up playing ten songs, I think. And uh, near the end of the set, he plays this cover of a Simon and Garfunkel song, and gets a standing ovation. I mean, the crowd really loved him. And and then I'm going to play that song for you a second. Gets a standing ovation. Uh, Like everyone up on their feet, fucking went crazy for this kid that they'd never heard of. And so he comes back and plays an encore. Um, wow. And it really should have been the a coming out party. Like yeah, it, was it should have Joe been the Cocker. gig that launched him. You know, and, yeah. and it just, you know, for various reasons, I'm sure, wasn't. But uh, he ends up later on, like, do you remember, like, Sid and Marty Croft, who had all those shows, like oh, HR yeah. Pup and stuff, and Lidsville? And, sure, sure, sure. You know, he ends up on the Croft Super Show in the band called Cool in the Kongs or something like that. Oh, yeah. It was like a Saturday morning show where they played cartoons and they had a band like the Banana Splits, which is also Sid and Marty Croft. Right, thing. right. You know, he just can't. He, he gets dropped from his record label after two or three records. Although, the, that first record, uh, The Road to Travel, is supposed to be really good. I got to find I'm, it. I got to find it, too. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for doing that. I'm so glad we're doing this just for this particular thing because it's odd that you would find new artists in something that was 50 years ago, but wow. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's, a quite a, it's quite a shock for me to discover uh, 
you know, discover Burt Summer <laughs> at a gig he played in 1969. Yeah, a gig um, called Woodstock. Yeah, <laughs> that they made a movie of, and they've written tons of books on. Yeah, and we're not doing an the whole podcast. Gig. Not an obscure festival, really. <laughs> yeah. um, but here he is, like yeah. knocking people out at it. So I'm going to play this song. This is a uh, this is by Simon and Garfunkel. And it's America, but he does a really wow. yeah. sensitive, beautiful version of it. Um, there's a few songs we're going to play today that are covers that I people really nailed. Um, yeah. Uh, there are some. It's true. Uh, so, anyways, this is uh, one more by Burt Summers, and then we'll move on. One more by Burt Summers. This is him playing uh, America. Let us be lovers. We'll marry our fortunes together. Well, I've got some real estate here in my bag. So we bought a pack of cigarettes And Mrs. Wagner's pot And we walked off To look for America Kathy, I said As we boarded a greyhound Pittsburgh Well, Michigan seems like a dream to me now It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw I've come to look for America Toss me a cigarette I think there's one in my raincoat Oh, we smoked the last one an hour ago So I looked at the scenery She read her magazines And the moon rose over an open field Kathy, I'm lost Oh, I said Though I knew she was sleeping I'm empty and aching And I don't know Counting cars on the New Jersey Turnpike They've all come to look for America They've all come to look for America All come to look for America
That is fucking great. First of all, that song is brilliant. It's a great song, yeah. Um, but, I mean, he totally nails it, too. He does it in a very different way, and it's got a lot of sensitivity. Different. It's very yes. sweet and sad and powerful. Like, he picks it up at the right moments and, like, delivers half a million people acoustic show, my first gig ever, I'm 20 years old, <laughs> and I'm going to absolutely crush this Simon and Garfunkel song right, a in song New York. Which, in New York, which is a huge at the time. And I, I have a little tidbit for you. So, of course, I'm waiting for... Counting the cars on the New Jersey. Yeah. T- okay, so I went to see Simon and Garfunkel in Central Park in eighty eighty one, whatever that was. And at that time, they made the announcement it was the largest gathering of people for any concert anywhere ever. I think Diana Ross ended up breaking it the next year, which we all were standing around going, "This is bigger than Woodstock," you know that whole thing. And when they played that song, and they people, I've oh, been yeah, I had the record. <laughs> I have been at Yankee Game Champion World Series at the Nick Game. You know, I've been. I've never heard a cheering when they sang that line from people. Just people went crazy. It just exploded. And so I was waiting for that line. And, man, did he ever bring it just now. He just brought it, and it took me right back to that moment. Yeah, it's, a, it's quite a performance, you know? What a find. Wow, good for him. How's he doing now? Is he still with us, uh, Brett? Uh, uh, I don't know. We should know. look that up and find him and tell him that we love him. No, he died. <laughs> That's right. He died. He, did. he died of a respiratory illness in uh, – at this in 1990. Oh, uh, how old was he? He would have been his fifties. Forty-one. 40. No. Oh yeah, jeez. Forty-one. Yeah. Wow, that's that is some performance. That's a, that's a moment in time, and it's been lost to the ages. So thank you for finding it, and uh, that's why I love doing this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I really love that. Uh, so that that ended at uh, at 9:15, and the next act up was Tim Harden, and Tim Harden. He's an amazing guy because he's a, an, he's an incredible songwriter who never had success singing his own songs the way other people did. Uh, from uh, Nico's version of Eulogy to Lenny Bruce, Scott Walker did Lady Came from Baltimore, which we played. Me and Dave Gibbs and Chris Seafree did a show uh, once. Um, of course, and the two bigger hits, Rod Stewart on Every Picture Tells a Story covers Reason to Believe. And uh, the biggest hit is Bobby Darren, who uh, sung If I Were a Carpenter. Yeah. Strangely, the only hit Tim Harden never really had on the radio was a song that Bobby Darren wrote. Uh, I can't remember what it's called right now. But, it's uh, like Harry Nielsen. <laughs> he, he had a, <laughs> he had a big song. problem with drugs, too. He had a lot of, especially heroin, that got worse and worse and worse as he got older and the 60s came to an end. Not that much older. Uh, he, after 1973, he never finished making another record, and he finally died of a drug overdose in 1980. But he wrote some truly spectacular songs, including like one of my favorite songs of all time, which he plays, is If I Were a Carpenter. You know, you should check this out. This is Tim Harden, If I Were a Carpenter. If I were a carpenter You were a lady Would you marry me? Take her were my 
That is such a prescient song for the decade that it's hearkening. It's there's 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 almost I, I said to you and I'll try to rephrase this as best I can, but it's almost like he's creating with that song and that version of that song a sort of a template from the seventies kind of folk. There was a Not different for the seventies, yeah. Before it, I mean, there's a template. You mean a template for the seventies? Yeah, yeah. All the stuff that really, really I grew up with, which is a different folk than what Dylan walked into, and, and Dylan was part of the reason why it changed, certainly. Uh, but that song right there is just sort of a wrap-up of a decade and also a forebearer for what's going to come. Yeah, I think that's really true. He's a brilliant, brilliant writer, and there's a reason, like, so many people in that coming decade cover his songs. You know, I mean... Uh... I was really impressed by that. Just the playing, and but the acoustic guitar playing, it just reminded me so much of so many songs that I ended up loving... Probably from like 1971, 72, right through to the, you know, before, just before the disco era. Um, that was replete on the radio. I mean, I was, uh, yeah. Anyway, really beautiful, beautiful song and uh, very haunting voice. I want to play the next one because he, uh, we spent all that time on Rod Stewart and, uh, and Ron Wood. And I mean, you'll recognize this song from them. I think we played it. <laughs> I'm not sure. Which one? Which one? Reason to believe. Oh, yes, we absolutely did. Okay, so, uh, unless we talk, but that was the B, that was supposed to be the A side first thing, the first single, but then it ended up being oh, right, uh, Maggie, being May, Maggie May. Right. right. But I think we did play Reason. You're right. You're right. So this is uh, this is the original, the songwriter playing his own song. This is Tim Harden, once again, at Woodstock, where Tim Harden was someone who was really, really affected by stage fright and uh, you know paralyzed by stage fright at times and. Uh, like I said, he had a really bad drug problem, and that was probably not helped on a day like today. But he plays really well, beautifully, somber, beautiful songs. This is a reason to believe. If I listen long enough to you, I'd find a I know that you lied straight face while I cried Still I look to find a reason to believe Someone like you makes it hard to live without somebody else Someone like you makes it hard to live I know that you like straight face 
a few of these things I better run through. Richard T. Crickle, K-R-I-C-K-L, from Massachusetts. Please call the father after 11 p.m. Wendy and Maynard from Fairlawn, please meet Jill in front of the stage. George has a slight problem. He broke his arm. Richard Casey, David Bradley, from Framingham, Mass. Please call the Bradley home or the Casey home. With these messages, we'll try to do them in between. Please make sure that they're worth it. Make sure that they, re they mean something. I'm going to embarrass somebody publicly for a minute. Josh White of the Joshua Light Show reminded me that last year, when we were in Philadelphia on July 4th, Tiny Tim came out on stage and did something none of us ever thought would happen. Let's see if we can do it again. Everybody in the audience, pull out a match and light it up. Let's see how bright it can be. Maybe that's only for Philadelphia. 
Come on, we must have more matches out there. Oh, that's it. Wow. Hey, look around at that. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Woo! Woo! I am informed that somebody somewhere is giving out some flat blue acid. It is poison. That's deadly serious, man. I just informed we got four or five people who are a little sick from it. Fifteen. Be cool. And whoever you are, man, I'd love to find you. I hate to, be hate to belabor the point, but I will say it again in case nobody heard me the first time. There is someone giving out some flat blue acid. It is poison. There are 15 people who are very ill from it. If anybody tries to give you any, you do it. You know, it's funny. I, just, I, w I did want to say one more thing about Tim, but that's funny that uh, uh, thanks to Adam, he was adding some stuff that we're cutting up, uh, stage announcements, which I think are really important because that was a big part of the personality, like the film. And a funny story from the, when, when I was in college, we used to do this joke. We would do like Woodstock <laughs> stage announcements. And in that case, oh, we always did the brown acid, the blue acid, which is hilarious there. And my, my favorite thing is, is it two people? No, 15 people. You think after three or four? No, I understand they're all over the place. But anyway. There's so a half million people. You could, you could be excused for missing out that it was happening. 50, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, um, but we used to do the stage announcements, which were always in the film. It's always like, you know, these fancy names. Will Moonflower please meet Sunbeam over by the scaffolding? So, um, but this is, you know, hey, the, the Kenilworths from you know, Farallon, call your dad. You know, I love that shit. It's just so personal. There's a half a million people he's announcing to, and he has to say, can we please keep these to normal things? This is important because you know that there's going to be some joker out there <laughs> giving yeah. him a note to read that nobody, you know, it's just, it's fantastic. It's just, it's like a club scene. Mike Hunt, come to the information booth. Mike Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> IP Daily. Is there anyone, by the way, IP Daily. Um, yeah, it, it, to me, it's 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 such a personality to what we're talking about here. You know, it's in the middle of nowhere. It becomes a thing later. But for these people, they're just getting together and enjoying each other and the, the, the experience of it. And so, of course, there would be – and you mentioned the hog farm and Wavy Gravy and all those guys walking around giving free food, you know, to these people and, and everybody getting together. And when it rains, they all huddle together beautifully, and we'll cover that later on. But, I mean, it's just – it really is. We'll keep saying it. It's just a miracle how, how well this all worked out really is um so the next person to play was ravi shankar and i don't really have a good piece of music by him uh but at, that's at 10 o'clock 10 p.m i mean Nord, I Nord one, Jones like better 20 known. minutes long i, I actually yeah. i don't know whether to play it or not i love it but it's it's he's playing sitar he's the famous sitar player he, who, he's uh, amazing musician George absolutely Harrison incredible and, musician um uh, Nora jones dad i don't know whether to play it in here or not uh but uh, yeah, so we can we can move on to the next thing. At least you and he played for about twenty minutes. You said he just played well, no, one he played song. for um, uh, well, like twenty five minutes. But the first, the the one song I have is twenty minutes long. So <laughs> all right. Anyways, uh, after that was Melanie. Now Melanie is a kid from Queens. Uh, she she grew up in Queens. Her mother's a jazz singer, and uh, she goes to college. She wants to just go perform, but her parents make her go to college. So she ends up going into NYC. And, to uh, American Academy of Dramatic Arts 
And to earn extra money, she's playing shows at the bitter end and other folk clubs around town. And she ends up being seen by John Hammond, the famous scout who discovered, among other people, Bob Dylan. And Springsteen um, later on. Yeah. Uh, and so he signed her to Columbia. And she's got a record. I don't know if she has a record out yet. I think she does have... Well, I'm not talking about... She does have a couple records out at this point. And she knows Artie Kornfeld, and she asks him if she can come up to Woodstock. She's not booked to play the show at all. And so her mother drives her up to Woodstock, and they end up hitting that same traffic jam as everybody else, and they get completely stuck miles and miles from, from the gig. And uh, they manage to find that hotel that's the artist base. And so she ends up getting on a... a a helicopter. They have to leave her mother behind because it's only for musicians. So even though she's not playing, they put her on one of the helicopters and she goes to Woodstock. And uh, she thought it was just an arts and crafts fair, like a small arts and crafts fair. Because if you remember, the name of the show right. was Woodstock and Arts and Music Festival. Fair. Fair, yeah. Um, an Aquarian Exposition. Three days of, yeah. Yeah, the Aquarian Exposition Woodstock and Arts and Music Fair is what it was called. Right. And so she's, it's not until they're actually descending in the helicopter that she looks down out of the <laughs> helicopter and realizes there's like, she's like, what is that below us? It's like dark mass that's kind of moving. It's a lake. You know, it's like, it looks like, and it's not, it's people. It's like an undulating It's a half mass. a million people. And yeah. she finally realizes what's going on. And she's horrified, kind of. <laughs> but, I mean, she was, I'm probably relieved she wasn't playing. But she gets there, and she's hanging out backstage with everybody. And during Ravi Shankar's set, it starts to pour. Like a heavy, heavy rainstorm. Right, the first He plays many. through it. And the incredible string band uh, is supposed to go on next. And they don't want to play in the rain. So they actually get in an argument with the promoters, and they demand to be given a different time, which is how they end up playing on the wrong day. But Melanie's also there backstage, and apparently you can hear, I, reading uh, liner notes to the, the Woodstock 50 box, Jesse Jarno says on the uh, the stage mics there, which are picking everything up, pick up the Incredible String Band saying they don't want to play, and they also pick up Melanie going over and saying, hey, you know, I'm here. Can I go on? If you need someone to play, let me play. And so she That's ends fantastic. up going on and playing. And uh, this is uh, Melanie, kid from Queens, who, who had would, her first big hits in England, actually. But uh, Who would go on later on and sing, I've got a brand new pair of roller skates. Yeah, brand new You've got a brand new her K. Big, massive hit. But she, and she also had a bigger hit before that. Not a bigger hit, but her first big hit before that was uh, Lay Down, Candles in the Rain, which is inspired by her experiences here at Woodstock and seeing all the people lighting right. the candles out in the rain. Um but at this point, she's got a couple hits, uh, one of which, minor hits, one of which is uh, Beautiful People, which she plays here. This is Melanie playing Beautiful People. Run and take all of your hands and 
I respect the hell out of that. She talks her way onto onto the stage by herself and plays this song. She she's just you could tell right off the bat the flutter in her voice. She's just naturally nervous because she's playing in front of half a million people. She wasn't even supposed to play. That story you told is a perfect precursor to hearing that song because it all comes out in the song. The performance is is absorbed. Her emotions are absorbed into that into that song and into that performance of it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that happened there is that the crowd really got sucked into it with her because she's clearly this young girl she's very nervous right they're rooting for her and they and they and she gathers strength during the playing of the first couple songs and they pick up on that and they they really get you know at least from the stuff i read about it they really get behind her you know and and her set really picks up and it, it ends up being one of the charming things of the festival because you know she just deals with her fear like anybody would yeah. she puts on and you know the song becomes quite powerful and also quite like emotional and like detailed in there she's uh i i really i really like that performance because you can really see a real person dealing with some fear and conquering it yeah and getting into like and at the end she's like they just be beautiful just be wet beautiful. people like you you know yeah, I mean? they're all it's they've it's been the whole on. point of this whole thing right yeah. be yourself man get out there don't worry about it but don't worry be happy you know the the Maribaba thing, and you know I hear a lot of Margaret Glatsby in there. I hear uh, Fiona Apple. I hear stuff that's going to come. You know yeah, what I mean? I hear some Ricky Lee Jones in there too. Ricky the, Lee, yeah. I want to want to play. Oh, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say one little tidbit about Melanie. The funny thing about Melanie, and I, I wrote this in my uh, my Shout It Out Loud book. Do you know that she was single handedly her relationship with Neil Bogart? Neil Bogart managed her early in her career, and he wouldn't pay her. He wouldn't extend her contract because of mere pennies. It was like pennies, uh, pound, foolish, all that other. And he let her go. And he always used that as a reason why he had to sign people. When Casablanca was on the brink and they had Kiss and they had the village people and they had all these bands, everybody kept telling him, these bands have a shelf life. Don't sign them for 10-year contracts. And Neil's like, no, I can't have the Melanie thing happen again. He kept saying, he's running around the office, I'm not going to have the Melanie thing happen again. And he signed these bands and they crushed Casablanca because neither one of those bands were big for much longer. He had gotten the most out of them and she had an amazing effect on him. Uh, He was the bubblegum king and a lot of it, he tried to sign singers that reminded him of Melanie. He was so heartbroken about losing her. Uh, She had that kind of effect on industry people. She really, and that, and I could see why. She's just so, 
you just want to take her home and take care of her when you listen to that, you know? She, uh, one of the things she does next is she does a cover, and it's, it's a great cover. And I, I really, she does a Dylan cover up in Woodstock, which is a ballsy, but she actually kind of crushes it. In the same way she did with the other song, she takes it and makes it her own and makes it a very emotional, real thing. So this is, uh, this is Melanie playing Mr. Tambourine Man. Oh, wow. I love that version uh, of that song. There's a timidity to it that just does not exist on any other version of that song. Yeah, I mean, she really gets into this, like, raw emotional thing that it's, like, so sad and sweet that, like, it reminds me of kind of what Bert Summer did with uh, with America. But, like, yeah. but there's a... I Less mean, you're ballsy. talking about playing in front of... You might you kind of want to overdo things sometimes playing in front of a half million people, but instead they're sitting there with acoustic guitars, those two artists... And really getting into the raw emotional fragility of a couple songs. That's and, a great version of Tambourine Man. And and we're really telling you the behind the scene behind the behind the scenes aspect of this Woodstock Festival. And I've read tons about this, and I knew Melanie played, and I I, I didn't know about uh, uh, Bert Summer, but it, it, you're it, just what we played today. You have Richie Havens, acoustic guy from the Village. Who, who's thrust on stage to, to open this massive event. And then you have two people who've really, I mean, Melanie's been in the business, but she's never, ever, she didn't even know what she was doing. She wasn't even supposed to play. And another guy who'd never played a gig before, 20 years old, going up there with nothing. But in the case of Bertie, had a couple of guys up there. But she's totally by herself here singing. 
And she wasn't even supposed to, like, five hours, eight hours before, she wasn't even supposed to be playing this thing or even being at it. I mean, it's just the stories are just incredible uh, when you think about it. I mean, we think of the enormity, and when you think of Woodstock, you think of Hendrix, and you think of The Who, and you, you think of Joe Cocker's big coming out party, and Santana saving the day after the rain, and all those stories that you hear. But you don't hear these stories. And they were just as important. These are the first few hours of this giant festival. Amazing. So it's almost midnight at this point after Melanie. Melanie plays from 10.50 to 11.20. And a half hour later, the next guy to go on, uh, the second to last person of the day is Arlo Guthrie. Of course, Woody Guthrie's son. Uh, and a folk singer at this point becoming a fairly famous folk singer in his own right. Uh, and so we're going to play you a little bit of Arlo Guthrie here. But first, John Morris is going to come on again and have a little bit of an announcement. So uh, <laughs> here's John Morris and then uh, Arlo Guthrie. It's a free concert from now on. That doesn't mean that anything goes. What that means is we're going to put the music up here for free. What it means is that the people who are put backing this thing, who put up the money for it, are going to take a bit of a bath, a big bath. That's no hype, that's truth. They're going to get hurt. But what it means is that these people who put this thing here have it in their heads and it's worth being grateful for that your welfare and their welfare is a hell of a lot more important and the music is than a dollar now let's face a situation we've had thousands and thousands of people come here today many many more than we knew or even dreamt or thought would be possible we're going to need each other to help each other to work this out because we're taxing the systems that we have set up. We're going to be bringing the food in. But the one major thing you have to remember tonight when you go back up into the woods to go to sleep or if you stay here is that the man next to you is your brother. And you damn well better treat each other that way because if they don't, then we blow the whole thing. But we've got it right there. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Arlo Guthrie.
woman walking on a moving floor, tripping on the escalator. Is a man in the line, and she's blowing his mind, thinking that he's already made her coming into Los Angeles, bringing in a couple of keys. Don't touch my bags, if you please, Mr. Customs. From London, from over the pole, flying in a big airliner, chicken flying everywhere around the plane. Could we ever feel much finer? Coming into Los Angeles, bringing in a couple of keys. Don't touch my bags, if you please, Mr. Customs. Yeah, it's far out, man. I don't know if you, I don't know, uh, like how many of you can dig how many people there are, man. Like I was rapping to the fuzz, <laughs> right? Can you dig it? Man, it's supposed to be a million and a half people here by tonight. Can you dig that? New York State Thruway is closed, man. <laughs> A lot of freaks. <laughs> We're gonna do a Bobby Dylan tune, man. All right. And uh, maybe you'll do it with us, you know. Maybe you won't. That's groovy. <laughs> I'm walking down the line. Walking down the line. Walking down the line. To be flying to tell you about my troubled mind. You should sing that, but try it. I'm a walking down the line, walking down the line, walking down the line. Fear to be flying to tell you about my troubled mind. That, you know, that's. Wait a second, guys. That's not where it's at, man. I mean, like, there's a lot of people here, man. And obviously, you're not walking down a line. <laughs> I mean, you know. Hey, when he wrote it, man, he probably wasn't walking down a line. You know? But you should sing it, because sometimes, like, you might be walking down. I mean, like, if, you know, an earthquake hits California, man. And all the, all the electricity goes and there's no more gasoline. You'll have to walk, you know, to wherever you're going. You might, you know, want to sing that song. <laughs> you might not. You might want to stay at home. But you could sing it staying at home too, man. We'll do it again. I'm a walking down the line. Walking down the line, that's it. Walking down the line, my feet will be flying to tell you about my troubled mind. Got a heavy-headed gal, got a heavy-headed gal. 
I got a heavy-headed gal, ain't feeling too well She gets better, only time can tell I'm a-walking down the line A-walking down the line A-walking down the line My feet will be flying To tell you about my troubled mind Seen the morning light I seen the morning light And it ain't because I'm an early riser Didn't get to sleep last night I'm a-walking down the line A-walking down the line About my troubled mind. Got my walking shoe. I got my walking shoe. I got my walking shoes. I ain't going to lose. I believe I got the walking blues. Cause I'm walking down the line. Walking down the line. Walking down the line. My feet will be flying. And tell you about my troubled mind. My money comes and goes My money comes and goes My money comes and goes Rolls and flows Rolls and flows To the holes in the bottom of my clothes And I'm walking down the line Walking down the line I'm walking down the line My feet will be flying Tell you about my troubled mind I'm a walking down the line Walking down the line, walking down the line, feet flying. One more time, I'm a walking down the line, walking down the line, walking down the line, feet be flying. It tell you about my troubled mind. I, I have one for you. Are you ready for this? <laughs> so this is Arlo Guthrie, the son of Woody Guthrie, singing a song written by Bob Dylan, who worshipped Woody Guthrie, obviously. And It's a very Woody Guthrie. Very Dylan, Woody yeah. Guthrie song, the holes in the shoes in the bottom of a clue. And then the way he's singing it sounds exactly like his father. When he gets in that register, when he gets way up there, yeah, yeah. those old films of Woody Guthrie singing, and then when he berates the audience, it's the way Woody used to do it when he used to play like uh, protest things for like the unions. He'd say, hey, hey, what are you guys doing? Get up here. You know, I, 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 if I had a hammer, any of those songs that, that Woody would sing. And then um, on top of all of that, it's, Dylan wrote that song in like 6061 when he was still trying to figure his way and he was still trying to be Woody Guthrie. And it didn't come – I didn't hear that until the first bootleg series in like 1989-90. Um, and then I, he played it also on the famous Carnegie Hall show, Dylan, but he didn't – but it, again, this is tapes that we didn't hear until years later. So – and I had never heard that because in the film was what you played – what we played first, which was uh, going into Los Angeles, which is very Dylan-esque. And uh, really our first song about drugs, or, you know, uh, smuggling drugs. And um, it's a great that, – those two songs right there totally depict probably 50 years of music history. That's amazing. Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> wow. um, funny thing about, about Arlo Guthrie, you know, he was uh, traveling around America and ended up going to stay with some friends in Massachusetts and – I guess the story I read, although it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, 
The story I read is that it's Thanksgiving Day, and he and his friend want to thank the people they're staying with for letting him stay. So he and, and this guy decide to take out the trash. And being that it's Thanksgiving Day, the dump is closed. I don't know who takes out the trash to the dump anyways, right. but the dump was closed. Uh, so they end up dumping the garbage down a hill on somebody's private property at a place where it looked like others had previously thrown out their garbage. Right. And he ends up getting arrested for littering. And he wrote the song Alice's Restaurant Massacre, which is, you know, his most famous song right. in a lot of ways. And now it's it based on the story of that. Right. And, and thanks, it's a Thanksgiving song now. It's, right. You know. you know, an anti-war, but he claimed to be an anti-stupid song. <laughs> Although I don't understand what they're doing dumping the garbage on someone's property anyway. That sounds stupid. But uh, <laughs> the funny thing about this, the, all the, I always the funniest thing about the story is that he actually, it kept him out of Vietnam because... That, that littering arrest kept him out of Vietnam because he was deemed not moral enough to join the army. Ah. On, the mor- on the morals clause, you know, at the point where they were actually still trying to keep people out who weren't of the right stuff. Right. You know, before they're just like, they just took anybody anybody. In, you know. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but this stupid thing that happened to him ends up giving him out of Vietnam. That's um, funny. Yeah. And I, and I love that, that one thing that he says there. You, we talked about it. It's like the one, two things from the film. When they film him singing uh, coming into Los Angeles, he's – it's just – as you said, there was no stage lighting. So it's like a single light on his face with a lot of black. And it almost seems like they staged it for the film, but it's so beautiful. And he's singing. It's just like the, the profile of his face singing it. No guitar. It's just like he's floating in air. And I love – you know, I've said it a million times. Hey, New York State's Jewelry's closed, man. A lot of freaks. <laughs> I love that. I love it. He gets off stage around 12, 15, 12, 30. Uh, Joan Baez comes on almost around 1 in the morning and plays, and uh, she's the headliner for that day. Right, another and Dylan reference. We have been uh, playing this podcast for long enough, I think, at this point, so yes. we're going to play you the one, one Joan Baez song. So we'll wrap with this, and it was a great show of really, like you said, folk first day of Woodstock, and we'll come back with day two next week. Yeah, day two will be a much more, well, it is supposed to be, a much more electric affair, at least in its, in, in its intention. Day True was always <laughs> going to be a much more electric affair. Uh, so we'll come back with that, but we'll take you out right now with Joan Baez, and then John Morris will say goodnight. Uh, <laughs> to us all. To us all. Yes. It's all right. This has been the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I'm James. I'm Adam. Peace. Late. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for hanging around. We thought maybe we'd have a... Sunrise concert, but maybe we won't quite make it to that. <laughs> it's a lesson too late for the learning. Made of sand, made of sand. In the way. You had reasons of plan.
That brings us fairly close to the dawn. The word I get is that maybe the best thing for everybody to do, unless you have a tent or some place specific to go to, is carve yourself out a piece of territory, say goodnight to your neighbor, and say thank you to yourself for making this the most peaceful, most pleasant day anybody's ever had in this kind of music. (laughs) 